0: Thank you guys for being here today. Uh, I am delighted because I have so many people that are so important in my life that are here this morning. Um, uh, If we go back chronologically, uh, uh, I've got Ken Dye and Charles Mickey in here. Ken was my pastor, pulpit minister depending upon what denominational term you want to use, Uh, uh, when I was just a young boy and he's the one who told me to go to law school but to not quit teaching Sunday school. And so I've taught Sunday school ever since and he is a principal reason why to have him here means the world to me. Charles Mickey was one of the, he was a college (coughs) minister to me but he was the college minister when I was in high school and, and one I aspired to learn from because he always cared about the depth and richness of scripture, not simply the activities that keep us tied together in community. And, and uh, then he gave me chances to teach when I was in law school and, and has done so much in my life and I'm grateful to have him here. And then I've got Two of my favorite pastors that there could ever be up here right now. I want to tell you, I want to tell you that Pastor Jarrett is one of the most amazing... If you've heard him preach, you know he's amazing there. If you've seen his excitement for the Lord, you know he's amazing there. If you've seen his social media presence, you know he's amazing there. If you recognize how much the Baptist world and the Christian world wants him in their backyard, you've seen how he manages to continue to do what he does here and still try to meet the needs and take our name out on a national level in so many different ways. But what I'm most impressed with... No, that's not fair. One of the things I'm most impressed with is his ability to recognize that he doesn't walk through as our senior pastor having us forget what lies behind. That's not what Paul meant in Philippians. He, he is able to keep tied, and he and Pastor David have a, a community friendship that is amazing to me because both of them have, at the deep of the core of their heart, a desire to see this church and God's kingdom grow as much as it can. And so Pastor Jarrett is taken away from his stuff this morning to be in here to help us, and I want you to join me in thanking him for who he is. Wow. Thanks, <clears throat> And I... If you hear it once, you'll hear it a thousand times from Pastor Jarrett. One of the reasons he left an incredible church to come here is because of the way this church, under the leadership of Pastor David, had grown to an inclusive church that's seeking to reach the community for Christ regardless of income, race, language, or whatever. And Pastor David is one of these pastors who has been gracious and kind and wonderful and a mentor to me, but more importantly, a leader in God's kingdom for so, so, so long, and to watch him not only welcome Jared in, in, in his Shoes, in a sense, a senior pastor here, but just delight in Jared, because Jared's taking this to places Pastor David said to me once, he says, Man, he's got gifts and talents I don't even remotely have, and they're exactly what the church needs right now. And I am so thankful to God that Pastor Jared is here leading this church. And I love that heart and I love that attitude. So would you join me in welcoming back Pastor David? <clears throat> now for our class this morning. Um, uh, What I would love to do, by the way, Al Shee, would you please stand up for a moment? This is Al Shee, who has graciously been my first publisher outside of legal arena publications. My first publisher, he published Christianity on Trial. He said get us atheism on trial and he's now responsible for our third book which you'll be getting in about a month or so maybe a month at two months uh religions on trial this is the pre-publication copy he is my editor he's my friend and he came all the way down here this weekend just to be a part of what we were doing and would you join me in thanking him for publishing my books thank you al but then there's just a host of people, um, uh, and I don't want to spend all the time on that. I want to get to, to, to class. But pastors, uh, Jared and David, said, hey, how about if class, since you're preparing the lecture for Saturday night, instead of you preparing for Sunday morning, why don't we interview you? And I said, that's, that, that's interesting. Um, Laughter I I went along with it under the following understanding. Um, I am no different in the eyes of God or in the eyes of this world properly understood than any of you. I am struggling to find the Lord each moment of each day in my life to get me um, uh, uh, through this life because I can't do it without him. And I'm not any more worthy of being interviewed than any of you out here, period. I guarantee you I could take any of you and put you up here, and this class would be incredibly edified if I got a chance to interview you. So I agree to do this under the understanding this is not about me. This is about our Lord and how he's working in one person or through one person and how one person understands him with the help of two of his dear pastors and friends. And so this is not uh, to be anything other than a reflection of God's glory. Now, some of that may be that people are interested in knowing uh, why I stand up and speak when my wife clearly can do it better than I can, as I've been reminded by three or four of you this morning. You know that's fine. I, I don't. I I think my personal life is is open to you, and I I want to be transparent. And I want to be authentic. So I have no qualms. I put no boundaries on this. But these two men, as much as anybody I know in my life, want <laughs> God to be glorified. So that is our prayer that this morning God will be glorified by our discussion and dialogue. So with that, I'm I'm at your. Did you see mercy. what I did
1: when you said I put no boundaries? I just did this <laughs> oh, right here. So no. he's on the hot seat. I, to try I them. am at
0: your mercy.
1: <laughs> well, let me say this. Uh, one, I just want to add my welcome uh, to that of Mark's. Love being in this class and opportunity he gives me. And it's great to have uh, David and Beverly with us. We love the Flemings. Debbie and I uh, just in, so enjoyed their friendship. And he's going to quarterback this interview. I'm going to jump in every now and then. Uh, but uh, I just want to say thanks for having me. And, David, thanks for being here and being you, man, leading this thing through.
2: Thank you. Uh, Good morning and and again let me add my welcome to all of you. Uh, You've been thrice welcomed. Is that even a word?
1: Yes. And we have a
2: problem right out of the gate Houston and the problem is is the whole first page of questions I have. Were to be very antagonistic and and, uh, dig deep and force, you know, treat him like a hostile witness on the stand, right? But he was so gracious in his introduction and his welcome. I'm just going to throw that whole page out, (laughs) and and we'll just start as friends and brothers in Christ. How about that? But I have watched Mark interview uh, countless authors and scholars on this stage uh, over the years, and what, 12 years of lectures? I think we've had almost 70 lectures now at the library. And so I want to give Mark a little bit of Mark, if that's all right, and do ask a few questions because as much as he has unpacked for us on a weekly basis in biblical literacy and through other measures and means as video thought for the day, the books, my goodness, uh, there's still got to be something about him we want to know, right? Something else that he's not told us. So I want to dig just a little bit, and I want to take us back initially, way back. I have heard Mark say... He was, at one point in his life, a professional chess player. I want to know more about that.
0: Well, okay, that, I made a living off playing chess for a while.
2: You were but fourth this, grade?
0: This is a, yeah, this is the kind of living you need when you're in eighth grade and seventh <laughs> grade. Which means, you know, you win 200 or $300 a year, you're in, you're in gold. Excellent. Um, no, what I did is I... I uh, Mom uh, got me started in the Bobby Fisher chess days when Fisher played Spassky. We lived in New York. She brought home a chess set and she said, learn to play this. Uh, it- it'll take you far. And so um, it, I learned to play it at that early age. And when we moved to Lubbock, I started going to chess tournaments. And chess tournaments were typically on a weekend and they were played by a bunch of old geezers. And, um, um, and I was this you know, 12-year-old kid who... Uh, The first tournament that we played, you'd play three games on a Saturday and two on a Sunday. And they would be done in a hotel. And the first tournament that I got to go to was in Midland, Texas. Now, I'm a 12-year-old kid. Midland's about an hour and a half or so from Lubbock. And so mom and dad were good to let me go, but they wanted to make sure who's going with you and you know, you don't just send a 12-year-old kid to go play in a, stay in a hotel. So I was going to stay with Dr. Underwood. He was a retired mathematics professor. He was the best chess player in Lubbock. He was president of our chess club, and he assured mom and dad he would take care of me. And so here I am, this 12-year-old kid going off with this 82-year-old man <laughs> to, 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 and, and about 10 others from the Lubbock Chess Club, and we go down there. We get down there. And uh, uh, you played Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, And then I finished my game. I'm with Mike Burns and several others in the the restaurant of the hotel. And Dr. Underwood, we'd been watching his game. He had a losing position. He fought back, he got a draw. We were so proud of him. He came to the restaurant to join us, you know, and I'm about through. So in about 30 minutes or so, I'll go back to the room with Dr. Underwood and I'll sleep and get ready for Sunday morning's game. And uh, uh, so I go back there and Dr. Underwood walks up, and we said, man, you did so good. We're so proud of you, and boom, he keels over dead of a heart attack right there at the table. I'm a 12-year-old kid. I've never seen anything dead other than a bird in my life, and uh, uh, he just keels over dead, and Mike Burns gets up and yells, get an ambulance, and starts giving him CPR, and I would love to tell you that that I was thinking, you know, God bless this man. God take care of this. No, all I was thinking was, Man, if this had happened 30 minutes later and been in the room with me, what on earth would I have done if this man <laughs> dropped dead on me? And so uh, uh, I get, I get uh, 10 cents out of my pocket, if you all recall that, and I go make a collect phone call to mom and dad and say, come get me, please. But that did not end my chess career. I continued to play and play for, uh, played tournament chess for money for, for a number of years. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. Do you still play?
0: Yeah, I still play. Do you? For yeah. money? No. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll play you for a dollar. You
1: said something in your answer there that struck me. You said I went back to sleep, and I don't think you ever sleep. So, uh, what is your? How do you do this? What is your rhythm? Well, it it, it's real erratic.
0: I I'll go through. uh, I can when I'm in trial. Oftentimes, I try to make sure I get four hours sleep a night, and that's my best shot. Um, When uh, and then I make up for it on the weekend. If uh, I'm not in trial, I generally probably average around six hours, but sometimes I'll get four. Sometimes I'll get eight.
1: Okay,
0: You know, it just depends.
1: More than our 12.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Uh, You said, uh, you told a little story this weekend about a conversation you'd had, I think, yesterday morning with some attorneys in a a conference call. And you asked them at the end of the call, so what are you guys going to do for fun today? What was your answer to that question? What do you do for fun?
0: Well, it it all depends. So today we've got uh, um, our daughter, Rachel, and son-in-law, Lee, and their four kids here. And we had so much fun with Charlie at Cavender's Boot City that we decided we needed to take those four grandchildren to Cavender's Boot City (laughs) and turn those little L.A. kids into um, drugstore cowboys. (laughs) So,
2: yeah. So, So you... You do have some leisure and recreation, some things that, that – because we sort of suspect that to churn out the work you churn out on a normal basis, you don't have any time to just disconnect, unplug, unwind, recharge. What, what do you do for those types of things?
0: Well, it, it depends. Um, I do love to – I, I, my problem is I love just about everything. And so I love to read and there's i 've got four or five books i 'm reading I love to write i 've got four or five books i 'm writing right now i've got I love to watch tv i 've got four or five shows that I follow. I love to garden I love to to hang out I love to play racquetball I love to run I love to ride the peloton I love to spend time with my wife and kids I love to travel I love to work i love to Teach, I love to.
1: Yeah, I love that too. <laughs> Anybody else ready for a nap?
2: <laughs>
1: Amazing.
0: I
2: guess the question then is, what don't you love? There's got to be something.
0: Yeah, I don't like onions.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, onions. Anything
0: else? Uh, mushrooms.
2: Oh, I love mushrooms.
0: Well, you could have mine. <laughs>
2: In fact, onions and mushrooms on the half of the pizza that's mine would be just great.
0: Okay. Well, that, that'll be your half the pizza. Um, <laughs> I don't eat fungus.
1: It is true, though, that when you're in trial, at least I've heard this or read this somewhere, that you eat the same thing like every – is that true?
0: Oh, in trial. I That's true. I had tuna and crackers for breakfast today. I had it for breakfast yesterday. I had. It's my wife's one big complaint about me probably in our marriage. The cause... smell of tuna? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the extension. <laughs> Um, Becky's a marvelous cook, and uh, when we first got married, she she wanted to cook these wonderful meals. And I'm just kind of like, I'd like the same thing over and over and over. I mean, I said, you know, it's a tough thing. I'm a rut guy. I like the same food from the same restaurant. I said, but I'm a rut guy. I like to come home to the same woman and the, the same house, you know. I'm, so it's it's got its pluses and its minuses. That is good. Not that Becky's a rut. No. I did not mean that that way. She's the pinnacle of the mountain.
2: That's good. Uh, Becky, you're okay? You can continue. Very good. Good. So let's move in the direction of of the book, and I think the question on most people's minds is you you have a busy law career, of course. You're one of America's, if not the very top attorney in the United States, by some very objective measures of success. Becky gave a glowing introduction last night at the uh, introduction. Amazing. No notes. She just got up there and extemporaneously presented her husband in such a way, and I know that had to bless you. I mean, you probably made you feel really small.
0: I, I didn't want to go after her. I was kind of like, well, just change subjects, but you keep going. You're doing great.
2: <laughs> but it was amazing. But, it, of course, it, it brings the question, uh, when do you write? If you're, if you're full-time in the, the legal world, uh, you've got family, you've got home, you've got all of these sorts of uh, hobbies and things that you love to do. When does this writing thing become... I don't know how many books uh, there are now. I know there's one in this series already. There's this one and then another one already coming out. So there's three in this. There's the Torah. Uh, There's the Psalms. You have bound at least a number of series that you've taught here in biblical literacy class. Do you know how many books you've you've published at this point?
0: No, and and I've quit really writing law books. I think I've got one law book that still comes out. Um, But... um, You know, I've got the the Jesus devotional, which is uh, daily devotionals and teachings from the life and teachings of Jesus, which isn't just the Gospels because we have him in Acts at the beginning before his ascension, and then we have him in Acts again when he comes and visits Paul. Uh, Then we've got him uh, in Revelation uh, speaking to the churches. And and so uh, I've I've got that book, Baylor, it's the third of the devotional series out of Baylor. And so that'll be out this, this early winter. It'll be out in time for Christmas. So you guys will get a copy of that as well. Um, right now, since I'm teaching Minor Prophets in here, uh, Baylor's got two more devotionals coming out from me at some point. One is on the Minor Prophets. So a devotional book out of the Minor Prophets. And the other one is out of uh, uh, the Epistles, a devotional book out of the Epistles, which I haven't done yet. But the Minor Prophets, I think I'm on April 16th as I'm writing through that. And... Um, what I'll do is typically uh, in the morning for my quiet time. Uh, I found God speaks through Scripture on e- every page, and uh, uh, I found you know I, I could I could I could teach the gospel out of the out of any one of the minor prophets. I could teach uh, uh, a fullness of Christian walk almost out of those minor prophets, and it makes sense. I mean, this was God speaking through people to His family, his kingdom, telling them how to live and what to do and what to expect. And so we don't spend a lot of time in those books, but those books are priceless in what they convey, both in message and in metaphor. And so um, um, each morning right now for my quiet time, almost each morning, uh, I'm spending time in the minor prophets. That doubles its time to prepare for class, and it triples because I'm writing the devotional book as I go along. So yesterday morning I got up and I, I was in Amos chapter 5 and uh, uh, I, I worked through some passages in Amos. It also keeps my Hebrew up because I'm working through my Hebrew as I work through the passage. And uh, so it, it does like quadruple duty in that sense. So,
2: so your rhythm is some, some writers stop everything, go away and write. It sounds like your writing is just a part of the normal rhythm of everyday life.
0: Yeah. Now, Al would tell you, my, my publisher or maybe my editor over there would tell you, sometimes I'm slow. Um, I, he's had to write me a couple times say, you said you'd get me this last month and you didn't. And so I, I, I've, uh, you know, I'm Could not Did say I'm th-
1: sorry? I'm running a trial in Cleveland. I'll get it to you when I can.
0: <laughs> Actually, I think I may have said that one time. <laughs> Please. I'm sorry. Uh, I have a job. And uh, uh, so, uh, um, but you know i've got i've got 3 or 4 books that i'm about 75% done with and they're nagging me that i can't get them done um because i i am not teaching on that stuff anymore if y'all remember uh, uh one for a while there i taught a class in here called defending paul with the idea when paul got arrested in jerusalem if through the magic of time travel or something he was able to hire me as his lawyer how would i have defended him and um uh you know, which means the first thing I'd do is a client interview. And so i want to know about Paul. Is he a nutter or is he a real deal? And, and you know, try to get to know him. And then I would try to, to look at the judge and the law and understand what it was. And I'd try. I mean, it, it's got the makings of a useful book. And I'm 75% done. But since I quit teaching the class, I just haven't gone back to finish it. And then found a publisher for it or anything like that. I've got another book. Um one of the things that america is learning if you didn't already know it is that the law in civilization is a reflection of the character of the law maker or law interpreter so for example for a long time since the 1970s the supreme court of the united states said that the constitution guarantees a woman a right to an abortion, at least until that the, the point of viability of the, the in, in womb child. And so uh, that Roe versus Wade opinion was one that said states cannot encroach on that constitutional right. Well, that was a reflection of the beliefs and opinions and morals of those judges on the Supreme Court. Now we've got different judges on the Supreme Court. They flip that. And when they flipped Roe versus Wade, it was a reflection of their morals and ethics and judgments that they're issuing forth. Laws aren't just mysteriously concocted. They reflect the morals of the lawgiver. Now, why is that important to us beyond the fact we part of society? The book that I've got 70% done is one that says... The law given to Moses was given to Moses. Moses wasn't the law giver. Moses was the law passer alonger. -alonger. God is the law giver. And so when we study the law, what does it tell us about the character and morals and ethics of God? God. Because that's what we can discern from the law. The law should not be looked at simply as the list of do's and don'ts for Israel, some of which we apply to us today. The law should first and foremost be looked at as a reflection of the character and statement of God, both within that society and what he was trying to work within Israel, and ultimately for all people. And when we go that next step and understand it, then we quit asking questions like, well, am I supposed to keep kosher? Am I supposed to this, that, and the other? Um, Because we begin to understand the law in its fuller sense. And so, you know, I just can't get those books across the finish line because I haven't said, okay, that's what I'm going to do now. And so that's my my problem. So what you're telling us, there
2: are four or five more books coming out, and you won't be sleeping at all until...
0: until they're done. That's what I'd need to do, but uh, I I get tired.
2: Well, speaking of the books, uh, you've had Christianity on trial. Uh, This one is atheism on trial. The next one, religion's on trial. So it's a trilogy. And what I've enjoyed, and especially from Christianity on trial, was where I really first started thinking about what actually is provable. How is it provable? What proofs can we offer? I want to just say by way of compliment, I don't think there's anybody – In the world, certainly not in the country, who is as uniquely qualified to write on this particular subject as Mark, not just because he's an attorney and not just because he's a Bible scholar and Bible teacher, but you put those two together and what we're getting in these books is an amazing approach to apologetics but also to evangelism, sharing the gospel, and to living out our faith, to believing our faith, as it were, uh, with the combining of these two. And I know a lot of pastors who went to law school. I know of lawyers who went to seminary. It makes a very powerful coming together of two fields that are really interconnected because we know, as he just said, the basis of the law is the lawgiver. So it really works well together. But I just want to affirm you and thank you for bringing your legal expertise into the Christian and apologetics conversation. I think every Christian needs to read all three of these books and understand the conversation because we get pushed or pulled or or buttoned into a particular corner and we feel helpless, but it's it's not necessary. So let me go there in this particular book with a little bit from Christianity on Trial. Uh, We all know someone who has said to us, prove it. Prove it. And we tend to either say, I can't prove it, it's uh, blind faith. I just believe, or at least that's the accusation. You just have blind faith, I can't have blind faith. Or we go into the other uh, mode, which is, okay, I'm going to prove it. But we use all the wrong measures and approaches. Talk to us a little bit about proof and proving our faith, and can we prove the existence of God?
0: Just an overview. The the analogy (laughs) I like to use is... There are different ways of proving different things. If I want to prove the distance between me and Greg's stay, I could get a tape measure and I could assess that it's about, I don't know, um, 25 feet, 20 feet. Uh, yeah, about 20, 25 feet. That tape measure would tell me. If I wanted to know the ambient temperature, I could get a thermometer and it would tell me it's about 70 degrees in here. And the thermometer is very valid for telling me what the temperature is in the room. But if I can't take that thermometer and use it to tell me the distance between me and Greg. Wrong measure. Wrong measure. Just won't work. And so some people want to talk about proving God in the sense of um, a mathematical formula or a laboratory experiment. Well, litmus paper can tell you if you've got an acid or a base, but it can't tell you if there's a God or not. It's the wrong measure of of proof. And so if we want to prove something, if I need to prove that uh, Danny Duguid ran a red light and careened into Sally's suffering, then... I've got to marshal together historical proof of what happened. I might have some eyewitnesses, but how much did they pay attention? might have some skid marks, might have the light sequencing, I might have the investigation done by the officer. But none of those things are 100% reliable conclusive. They all go together to give you an idea and I'll go further. If Sally's been damaged, I have to prove how much she has suffered. Well, I can show you the medical records, but they don't say how much her pain was. You can't determine how much of her mental anguish was there when she tried to figure out how she's going to get food on her table because she can't go to her work because she's laid up and her job won't pay her. So I've got to prove those things. You say, well, you can't prove that. Yes, you can. We have measures to prove that, just like we've got a thermometer to prove temperature. The existence of God's very provable in a legal and binding sense. You say, well, that's courtroom shenanigans. No, it's not. That's the basis of our society. The reason you have airbags in your car is because lawyers have seen to the fact and then ultimately the federal governments put it into to regulation, but initially it was lawyers who saw the fact that your car had to be crash-worthy. You can't just make a car that's going to fold up like a, a crumbled piece of paper in a car wreck when you've got the technology to do it better. So our courtrooms and our, our, our legal system of proof has deemed to be the best society's ever come up with for finding out what truth is and using it to, to enforce life. And, um, uh, I, I just think that we've made a mistake because we've listened to the people who argue for or against the existence of God and they try to do it based upon the wrong measuring stick. They'll use the thermometer for the distance and that's not what works. And so I, I, that's, that's my frustration with other people. And then I was talking to Tom Davis. I don't know if Tom's here this morning or not. There you are, Tom. Last night, Tom said, you know, that some people will come to him when he's had these dialogues and say, well, yes, uh, morality is something that's not really objective, but we pretend that it is because evolutionarily, it makes us better in our life if we follow some area of morality and so we've evolved to ascribe to morality I said yes I've heard that argument as well but my challenge to them is where's your study that proves that where's your study that proves you want me to prove the existence of God I'll do it I'll put it in the scales and we'll see where the evidence lies but you want to turn around and say no 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 that's evolutionary you show me your proof that we evolved to ascribe to morality that's fictional simply because it helps us in our evolutionary process. And their response is, well, nobody can study that. Okay, so you'll believe things that nobody can study. Yeah. But when I set forward that, and and frankly, I would think that's legitimate. There are some things we don't have answers to. Uh, I mean, there, there are substances in the human cell that scientists have figured out exist that are transnucleic. They go from the outside of the, the, the nucleus of the cell into the nucleus and they, they will take with them certain uh, uh, chemicals to influence the nucleus of the cell. And scientists have never seen them. They're too small to be seen. But they figured out they must exist. They must exist because it's the only thing that makes sense of what's going on within the cell. So science even depends upon things for different reasons through deductive reasoning. There's nothing
1: wrong with using that on matters of faith. So how do you, Mark, you spoke last night about people having confirmation bias. And so a lot of unbelievers that were trying to win to Christ, uh, the more passionate they are about it, as you showed, uh, the more their confirmation bias Rises. So how do you help to show them their confirmation bias?
0: Well, that's a brilliant question because confirmation bias affects us all. And so when you start talking to anyone about confirmation bias, if you missed it or don't know, confirmation bias is the human tendency that's been well-documented. Francis Bacon wrote on it. Tons of people have written on it. Um, the human tendency to form an opinion— and then interpret evidence and arguments in ways that are consistent with what you already believe. And so if someone has evidence and argument that confirms what you believe, you yeah, that's right. If it's different, you say, ah, I don't pay attention to that. That's that's not even relevant. That's the human tendency. And when you point that out to people who don't believe in God, then what what the smart person's going to do is say, but wait a minute, if everybody's got confirmation bias, Mark Lanier, you have it too. Mm -hmm. So who's to say that you're not doing that when you believe there's a God and you're shunning the evidence outside? That's a legitimate argument anytime we bring in confirmation bias. But it has a response. This is one of the many reasons that we made all of our kids do high school debate. Because as a high school kid, I trained in being able to argue both sides of an issue. The whole point of debate is an academic exercise, one of the points, in, in high school and in college, and I debated at both levels, is to force you to overcome confirmation bias to teach you to look at both sides of an issue and assess the arguments on both sides and be able to freely argue both sides. So this is something that that not only I trained in, in a sense, in, in a very formative time of life, but it's something as a lawyer I've had to continue to work on. Because if I can't overcome confirmation bias, I can't figure out the weaknesses in my case before I go to trial. I can't address those. I can't fairly tell my client, you should settle this case because we will likely lose on this issue. I can't tell my client, this is the most value your case is going to have. Here are the negatives that are going to bring the value down from where you believe it is. If I can't overcome confirmation bias in my job, I will be a failure as a trial lawyer many, many, many times. So I'm trained in overcoming confirmation bias, but most people are not. Doesn't mean I don't have it. I do. Doesn't mean I don't need to look at it. I do. And I'm willing to engage with people to challenge my beliefs and to challenge my confirmation bias, and I try to do so on a regular basis. But most people are not trained. They don't even know confirmation bias exists. And you really, really, really have to instruct and help them understand that if you want them to get past emotional responses to whatever it is you're talking about. Because I'm still convinced most people do not, are not atheists or agnostics because of intellectual reasons. Most people are because either A, they just haven't cared enough to think it through, indifference. B, they think it futile to think it through. Who could know that anyway? I might as well just live. Or C, they've got an emotional or a a will issue behind their unbelief. I mean, I, I know some atheists I've talked to who don't believe in God because they're just so mad at Him. Mm. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'll teach Him. I just won't believe in Him. Contradictory. And you're like, okay, <laughs> well, let's try and deal with your anger issues for a moment. <laughs> well, I mean, if God's that way, I'm just not going to do I'm not. I'm not going to believe in Him. Well, you know, how that work with your kids? You get real frustrated with your kids, so you just quit believing in them? You don't exist anymore because you didn't, I don't know what. But uh, that was one dialogue I had with one guy who was complaining to me about his kid. My kid did this and this and this and this. I don't know what to do. Well, you try to figure it out. You work with your kid. You don't just quit believing in him. I don't have a kid anymore. Anyway.
2: Yep. Let's, let me hit pause on that one second to point a little further down the, the line. We want to talk about the Christian approach to a person who might claim to be atheist or agnostic especially uh, how do we engage and and sort of the process and where it really hits close to home is probably most people in the room know somebody that somebody may be a family member, maybe a child, son or a daughter, a sibling could be a parent, Uh, next door neighbor a co-worker who's there and so we just want to talk practically how do we engage, how do we approach so I want to save some time for that and I don't want you to have to recite the book because uh, everyone can read the book but you just said you've have a career along with the education and, and, of course, the experience of looking at something objectively and coming up with a verdict, at least from your perspective as the trial attorney. So you put atheism on trial. Give us just the broad stroke of the evidence you considered, and what were your conclusions?
0: Um, I was and, looking and, and for. Please do a-
2: include. The salient points, meaning, you know, what was convincing on its own.
0: I was looking for an email I've got, and and I'll pull it up in a minute because it's going to be relevant to that. But let me address this first. Um, What I tried to do is I tried to assess all of the arguments that are out there. And how did I go about doing that? Uh, First of all, I engage with people. Uh, I live in a world that's outside of the church. And so I live in a world with people who are of all persuasions and who fit into all of the categories I've talked about. And I engage them in dialogue. I, I, I talk to them. I, I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know why they believe what they believe or don't believe what they don't believe. And so uh, I've got from those experiences. In fact, one of the things Al had me do in the book is, is when I sent him uh, the first uh, draft or whatever, he wrote back and one of his comments was, "Can't you put a personal story in here of someone who was this way and then came to faith?" Hmm. And and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's a real good idea." And let me tell you about you know, so and so, and uh, so and so. I, I put the, the the story in there, um, but I engage with people, so that was one source of the arguments that I try and address are just the arguments from the people that that I talk to um, a second source are I read the books by the atheists, the prominent atheists, so um, you know the popular books uh, you know the god delusion um, uh, you know uh, what else um, sam harris 's stuff uh, he's written some some um, books that are popular on this issue. I, I, I try to read all of those books as well. Uh, some of the less popular books are actually a lot better. The popular ones seem to be written with pretty poor logic and pretty poor philosophy, if I can be that judgmental. Um, it's it's uh, written with a lot of rhetorical toys and plays and arguments that would not stand up in a vigorous court of law. Um, and, but then there are those that are not so popular that are actually a lot better at arguing for, on these issues. And so I try to read all of those um, uh, historically and, and, and currently. Then I also got on the internet. I just started looking at all the atheism websites. And most of that stuff's about an inch deep, but it's very wide. And so I, you know, like, I'd never seen God. Okay, do we understand what vision is? Vision is light waves bouncing off of matter where some of the light's absorbed by the matter and what's not absorbed by the matter is reflected back, and our brain assesses those light waves and interprets it into determining what the matter is there that's absorbing some and bouncing back the other. That's what's going on. Well, if God's not made out of matter, you're not going to see God in that sense. Now God can become human, and all of a sudden He can take on matter, and that was Jesus. But but the spiritual God you you don't see. Um, and so you know I, I tried to take those arguments as well. The, they're just the popular ones that are pretty superficial, but but still have some appeal to people because they're on the internet. And so those were the sources that I used. Um, but I'm I'm remiss if I don't say that I, I really mean it when I say confirmation bias says that that we need to challenge ourselves so I sort through these arguments and I try to see the ones that that if I'm making the argument for the other side, what's most compelling
2: mm-hmm. and what might that have been, what stands out
0: I I I think that the most compelling arguments seem to be Ones that that just have answers. I mean, that's the problem. There are answers to pain and suffering with a, a loving God. There are answers to injustice uh, with a just God. Um, there are answers to hypocrisy in the church.
1: Um, uh,
0: uh, there are answers to um meanness and evil. Um. There, there, there are answers to it and so I look at those and those are the most compelling arguments but they're not arguments where I'm without any answer because to me those are compelling arguments also for the existence of God if if there's no God to hardwire me to justice why do I care about justice I mean who gets to decide that's a virtue But we all get so caught up in in defining the world by the way we are that it doesn't occur to us. It's like Australia. Who decided they're on the bottom and we're on the top? That's not decreed by God. God doesn't have his head in the northern hemisphere and his feet in the southern hemisphere. It's just western civilization is all north of the equator And we all figured it out. So they're down there and we're up here. But in the cosmos of space, do you think somebody from planet Zulon in the Andromeda strain galaxy or whatever, not strain, galaxy, is going to say, oh, that's at the top of the world and that's at the bottom? No, I mean, that's just arbitrary. But yet with us, things aren't arbitrary. We're hardwired to know the difference. So these arguments against God actually to me are arguments for God if we understand them in their fullness and think them through to their logical conclusion.
1: So what are our appetite, if you will, for religions on trial? Did you find that many of these religions don't answer? Oh, I love that. So here's the the, the premise behind...
0: At, At first I was like... Not really happy with this book. Um, I thought it, eh. And then I'll let me write some new chapters and some ads. And now I'm very excited about this book because here's the premise of the book: God made every one of us. God is responsible for the DNA that courses in our bodies. God has us hardwired for truth. We love truth. When we find truth and authenticity, we grab hold of it like a magnet does metal. We embrace it. Because of that, and because God has revealed His glory in this world, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the evidence of God is all around us. You can take well-meaning people from any time of history, from any place on the globe, and as they search for truth, they will find elements of truth. So you can go into Buddhism and find elements of truth. You can go into Hinduism and find elements of truth. You can go into fill-in-the-blank and find elements of truth. You can go into atheism and find elements of truth. You can find elements of truth in all of these world thought systems. The problem is they're con- they, they, they've got so many other aspects that are not true that you have to peel away. And they're missing some of the hugest truth that is so critical that is revealed through the revelation of God in Scripture. Not the least of which is the death, burial, and resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus. So you can look at all of these different religions and find elements of truth because God has prepared all of the hearts of all people to receive the gospel. And so we can go and we can find those truths and we can affirm them in their truths even as we ferret out those areas that aren't true. And then we can add to it the gospel and the truth that's been revealed. So uh, it's um, an illustration that I plan on doing. Uh, I'll just save it. I'll save it when I'm in here. But that's that's the the premise here, is that we can find elements of truth in in all of these different places. So let's find it. Let's, Let's applaud it. But once we identify it and explain that those truths are within Christianity, it plies people to be a little more open to understand, okay, I can hold on to my truth that I have found to be valid truth and understand now why some of the stuff in this religion is not truth. And then why there is an open... I think a prime example is Judaism. So Judaism, uh, uh, from a Christian perspective, Judaism is the foundation of our faith. It's the revelation of God. But if Judaism does not understand that Yeshua was the Messiah, they're missing that Culmination, that completion of their faith. And so you want to not only try to look at their faith and see all of the good, wonderful things, but you want to also add to it the gospel. and And it's that way with each of the world's religious thought systems. Uh, you take atheism. Uh, atheism's real good at science and real good at, at some medicine and things like that. Because all they believe is real is matter and the world order. So they spend all their time on it. Well, I applaud that. I need medicine. I need science. But let me add to it who made the medicine and who made the science. And why he made them. Because when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand that science can be used for good or for evil. The same understanding of nuclear physics can give us an MRI machine which can early detect cancer, or it can give us a tactical nuclear weapon that can explode over Ukraine and do immeasurable damage. So God gives us science to do good things, not to do bad. If we only have the science and we don't have the God behind the science, then we're missing the fullness of life and, and beauty, if that makes sense.
2: That's good. Uh, let me... Yes. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. We've got just a few minutes left. I want to affirm you as the biblical literacy crowd. Uh, Many of you have been here for years and years and years. You've sat under Mark's teaching. You've learned an awful lot, and I know you're you're grateful as I am. Uh, A lot of this material you hear him discussing or you're reading the books, you've heard before, and the reason is, is it's been a lesson in biblical literacy many of the time. So thank you for being a full participant in the writing process that turns these books out so that millions, I believe, around the world will benefit from it, so good job on the partnership, well done. But I want to ask Mark to close the class with an encouraging word to two different types of people. Type one, uh, I have a family member, a close friend, who self-identifies as atheist or agnostic or Buddhist or some ism. Uh, Give me just a quick point on the proper approach. And the second type of person is, I'm that other person identifying as one of these isms. What would you say to me to move me a little further in my journey?
0: Okay, I'm going to flip those and do the other. Good. Uh, Do it backwards. Um, If you are that person, um, I'm so proud of you for even getting this far and listening to this. Mm. That shows an openness and that shows a recognition and and perhaps even a longingness for knowing if there's more to life. And I want to assure you there is. I want to assure you there are a lot of people who would devotedly give up their time and energy to help you walk through that. But all anybody can do is give you what the Spirit of God wants you to have. And so I urge you to continue to reach out for it. Because there's, there's a line where Jesus uses a metaphor and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever will open the door and welcome me, I'll come in and sup with you. And so what you're hearing, what you're sensing, is that knock of Jesus. And I just urge you to open the door. And if you are someone in the other category who's got a family member, then I've got a quick and easy thing to tell you. Go back and listen to last week's sermon from Jarrett with nine prayers you need to be praying for those people. And then listen to Jarrett in the next hour at church, because Jarrett, what are you
1: going to tell us? We're going to talk about investing in people who are far from Christ and the need that we have to make sure that we're loving them and serving them in Christ's name. And is it good? It's real good. <laughs> 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 it's good. Wait, wait, <laughs> you're for it, right? I'm for it. You're for, for it, against it. <laughs> he's, he's for it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good I do
0: hope everybody listening, and if you're watching this online, I hope you'll tune in online. Champion Forest, uh, CF, what's this? Championforest.org. Thank yeah. you, Pastor Brent, you. and uh, um, I do hope that you will uh, tune in and and or go in and listen. That would be my best advice because Jarrett is walking us through this, and we listen to Pastor Jarrett. It's it it is fantastic. I'm I'm excited about what God's doing. Uh, Pastor Brent sent out an email with the nine prayers. Um, I've taken that email and every day I forward it to myself for the next morning for my prayer time, so that I've got it right in front of me in my inbox every day. And I hope you're doing the same. If you need it resent to you, Pastor Brent will resend it out. Nine prayers, boom, and and they flow together real well. So with that, I'll I'll say a prayer over us. And Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus to touch every heart and every mind with the truth of your call your desire to fellowship over life with each of us in an unconditional loving relationship. We need that, Father. Our hearts cry for the truth and reality of that. And we pray that we will live that truth and reality in an unbelieving world to help point them to the truth of who you are and the love you have. We pray these things through you, our Lord Jesus. Amen.